ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. The game of chess was once considered a tranquil intellectual affair, played by gentlemen in Victorian drawing rooms and making few inroads into the general public's consciousness, other than occasional flashes by outspoken chess personalities like Bobby Fischer and Gary Kasparov. But no longer. Today, online chess is enjoyed by millions of players around the world, and major over-the-board tournaments generate day-long commentary and analyses from grandmasters broadcast live to tens of thousands in multiple languages. Chess's newfound popularity is due in no small part to the game's promotion by reigning world champion Magnus Carlsen, a Norwegian super grandmaster who has dominated the chess world for the past decade. However, chess's reach into the general public's consciousness reached a peak in late October 2022, and not necessarily in a positive way, when media outlets around the world headlined the startling news that American chess prodigy Hans Niemann had sued Carlson and several other parties for $100 million in United States Federal District Court. What happened to bring chess to this point, and what does it all have to do with intelligent design? Hello, I'm Eric Anderson, and today I'm honored to be joined by Dr. William Dembski to discuss this current dust-up in the chess world and how it relates to his work. Dembski is one of the key figures in the modern debate over evolution and intelligent design with groundbreaking work on the design inference and the concept of complex specified information. He is author or editor of more books than I can mention and holds multiple advanced degrees, including in mathematics, physics, computer science, statistics, and philosophy. Welcome, Bill. Good to be with you, Eric. I think it's been about 20 years we've known each other. Yeah, it's been a while. I, I've certainly looked at your work and it's been a big impact on me. And, and certainly, I think from all of us, I want to thank you for all that you've yeah. done in terms well, of moving you. us forward. So I know, speaking of, I know you, you worked day and night on intelligent design for many years. And a few years ago, you indicated you were going to step back a little bit and focus on some other projects. Uh, the critics kind of came out of the woodwork and crowed that Dembski was abandoning intelligent design or walking back on your prior work, yet yet here you are, still interested in intelligent design and the design inference. Yeah, tell us a little bit, Bill, about the projects uh, you've been working on and maybe what you're doing now. Yeah. Well, let me start. I, you know, I'm, I walk back nothing of what I've done on intelligent design. I mean, I think there's, there's always room for improvement. Arguments can be refined, but in terms of the, the broad thrust of what I was doing on design detection, you know, I'm totally with that. And my, my skepticism of uh, Darwinian evolutionary theory remains as profound as ever. So it's uh, no, nothing there. I think what, what happened was about 10 years ago, I got uh, started working in online educational technologies and websites and started, you know, basically left the academic world to make money as a businessman. And so that's taken quite a bit of my attention. I, for uh, probably two, three years, I, I just, uh, I guess I could say I was officially retired from intelligent design, but I'm, I'm back, back in the saddle. I'm working on a second edition of the design inference. Uh, it's long overdue. So the, the hope is uh, making good progress. I was working on it just before our conversation here, and the plan is to have a 25th anniversary second edition out next year. So, uh, you know, and then uh, I actually feel galvanized uh, to work in intelligent design again. I mean, it's, uh, I think, I think when I quote unquote retired, I'd been at it for 25 years. And I think you know, it happens that you get stale at something. You need a break. I, I got the break and now I feel energized. So uh, with regard to what I do, I think my main project these days is a site called academicinfluence.com. 
And it's, it's trying to do academic rankings, both of people, uh, academic persons, and then schools, institutions, departments, uh, rank them by influence and do it in a way that has real integrity. If you mm-hmm. look at, for instance, U.S. News and World Report rankings, they're just infected with bias, subjectivity. I mean, so much of the, the rankings depends on these reputation surveys. You know, what, what does it really matter whether the president of Princeton thinks that Harvard is slightly better than Yale? You know, so what we do is we look at the influence of people in the academic world as gauged by their influence in a discipline. So initially, it's uh, influences a relation between person and discipline. And then what we can do is we can see, well, who, which people are associated with which schools, and then we can use the influence of people to bootstrap uh, the influence of schools and departments. And we can do this by time period also. So for instance, we can look at who were the most influential mathematicians in the 19th century and then determine which was the most influential math department Hmm. uh, in the 19th century. And so we can see who was inducing that influence. So we see, for instance, that Göttingen was the most influential mathematics school in the 19th century. And the people who contributed their influence to make that happen were uh, mathematicians such as Gauss, Riemann and Hilbert. I mean, these these are, by any standards, uh, mathematicians that inhabit Mount Olympus. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the project. I mean, basically to have a way of ranking excellence, influence in the academy that's not gameable. That, uh, and so we look at Wikipedia, you know, 300 translations of Wikipedia, traffic patterns to Wikipedia, but then also Crossref. Semantic Scholar, hundreds of millions of citations, and we have an algorithm that puts it all together. And, uh, you know, once the ranking is generated, it's generated without interference or human intervention. And we are getting clear signals mm. of influence and uh, academic impact. So it's a, it's a neat project. Uh, it's still somewhat in startup mode. I've had to invest quite a bit to bring this off, but uh, I think it's, it's it's looking promising. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a great opportunity to do some good work and make some influence in that area. If you're in startup yeah. mode, uh, you know, I hope you can find some time for intelligent design and know how yeah. startups go. So, well, I've got, I've got a good yeah. team of people who, uh, you know, really are moving that forward. And I, I keep a pretty low profile, you know, I don't, you know, that's uh, this, this work stands on its own and it's quite separate from intelligent design. So yeah. Well, good, good. Yeah. And it's exciting to hear that you're uh, invigorated and returning to a little more activity with intelligent design, looking forward to the update of the book. So that'll be yeah, great. Thank you. So let's dive into our topic today. Maybe before hitting the chess um, for listeners, let's just take a minute to kind of recap the design inference. So people, Bill, have been drawing design inferences since the dawn of humanity. And sometimes those have been well warranted and sound. Other times they've been poorly made, like the famous man in the moon or yeah. Percival Lowell's canals on Mars. But many years ago, you laid out a way to make a design inference objective, mathematically rigorous, and to provide sufficient substantive purchase, I would say, to warrant a science-based conclusion that can be relied upon with extremely high confidence, and more importantly, in my view, without false positives. Yeah. So we typically discuss this in the ID context, in cosmology, or more often in biology, but some of some of the critics have said, hey, the design inference isn't really taken serious by anybody other than those ID folks or ID folks just made it up, or it's not a valid way of drawing conclusions. But 
this uh, recent news item has nothing to do with biology yet employs some of the same principles you talked about in your work. Sure. Well, you know, and it's the the design inference. I mean, the the book itself, where I developed these ideas rigorously, it wasn't looking at biology except as an example. It was there's an origin of life example to show how the logic of the design inference worked, but. There was a whole uh, sampler of examples and it was looking at data falsification in science, archaeology. Mm-hmm. Is that an arrowhead or is it just a random chunk of rock? You know, forensic right. science, did this person die by natural causes or was there foul play? And so we draw these distinctions between what's the result of design and what's the result of some sort of chance, necessity, chance, necessity combination all the time. And there's, there's a logic by which we do it. And so what I did in that book was articulate that logic, you know, and it was uncontroversial in all these other areas, you know. So, I mean, <laughs> when, I, uh, when I published the design inference with Cambridge University Press in 1998, it got rave reviews from people who subsequently turned against me when I applied its methods to biology. But, you know, a method is a method. It's, uh, it doesn't care where you apply it. But uh, I think the, the critics just didn't like the answers uh, it was giving when you applied it to biology. But, you know, I mean, how is it, for instance, you know, in the movie Contact, this uh, movie based on a novel by Carl Sagan of the same name, where, you know, there's a key moment where a signal comes in from outer space. You know, you don't see the little green person. It's just a signal. Lots of signals mm-hmm. are coming in from outer space. What was it about that signal that nailed it, that there was an intelligence behind that signal. And that's what we're always doing. We're looking for patterns that will tell us we're dealing with an intelligence. Well, in this case, it was a long sequence of, as it turned out, it was amplified on a speaker system of beats and pauses that spelled out prime numbers from two to 101, I think was, uh, was you know, and this is a, mm-hmm. a long sequence. So there's complexity in the sense of improbability. It would be highly improbable to get that sequence by chance. Okay. Any, any sort of reasonable probability model of how you could get zeros and ones would render that highly improbable. At the same time, there's also a salient independently given pattern. It's a pattern that's significant in mathematics. It's not just any old, any old mm-hmm. sequence. I mean, a random sequence, a totally random sequence would be highly improbable, but there'd be no salient pattern. Okay. And that's, that's this yeah. key notion of specification. It's the type of pattern that tells us we're dealing with intelligence. And so that's unlike looking at cloud formation and seeing, you know, what do you see? Do you see man on the moon? Do you see Santa Claus? What? I don't know, you know. But if you have a cloud formation that spells out, you know, eat at Joe's very clearly, you know that that's not just something where you're reading in your own preferences or, you know, you're just making it up. So there are patterns which are really, you know, the design is there, it's hitting you over the head. And, you know, we in the intelligent design community would say that in biology, it's also hitting you over the head. But, you know, let me, one thing I can just say, because, you know, some people might say, well, are the biologists just being totally unreasonable, uh, you know, that they refuse to apply this method? And I think the what, what's really going on is they look to, the Darwinian mechanism of selection, mutation, reproduction, this, this whole mechanism, and they see it as a probability amplifier so that you mm. actually get, you know, what seems to be highly improbable, you know, getting some irreducibly complex system of the sort that Mike Behe considers, 
that at the end of the day, it really is fairly probable if, if you could just understand the nuts and bolts of what selection and mutation are doing. They, they never analyze it. They never get to the nuts and bolts of it. They just, uh, you know, the, the, there's a key example that Richard Dawkins gave, uh, which is supposed to illustrate Darwinian evolution. Uh, he has a, he thinks it is like a weasel uh, example. And actually, right. I, I've got even a, a simpler one. Uh, 20 years ago, I was on a television interview with Eugenie Scott, who is head of National Center for Science Education with Peter Robinson. This was out of Hoover Institute. And he raised the question of monkeys typing Shakespeare. And mm -hmm. Scott said, well, the way Darwin would explain monkeys typing Shakespeare, it's not that they're randomly typing, but that there's a lab tech behind the monkey. And every time <laughs> a, a monkey types a wrong character, the lab tech takes from a vat of whiteout and whites out the error, okay? Oh, now, the thing is, selection does get rid of errors. I mean, if you're sufficiently in error, you're not going to be surviving and reproducing. But the question is, you know, in this example, how does the lab tech know what to white out? You know, I mean, the whole point of this example mm -hmm. is to explain Shakespeare without Shakespeare, to get the appearance of design without actual design. And... What they've done is they've pushed the problem further back. So where I'm going with this is the sort of design inference that I laid out, they always feel they've got a dodge where they basically can say it really isn't all that improbable. Where some further work comes in with what's called conservation of information, which is that if you raise the probability, there's an information cost. And at the end of the day, that information cost is such that you haven't really helped yourself. It's kind of like you buy more lottery tickets, you've increased yeah. your probability of winning the lottery, but at the end of the day, you haven't improved your expectation, your mathematical expectation of what you're going to win because all those lottery tickets cost you a lot of money. And so on average, you're not going to be any better off. And that's the sort of reasoning with conservation of information. I don't want to get into that because it's, it's a vast topic and that's work that's predates or that postdates the design inference by about 10 years, that will, that information will be in the, the second edition of the design inference. But uh, at any, any rate, I think the design inference, we have, I think, convincingly applied it to various biological systems. I think some Doug Axe's work, a uh, molecular biologist with Discovery Institute is some of the best there. Where basically you look at these systems and you show, you provide a very strong probabilistic case that they're unevolvable, that Darwinian mechanisms can't get you there. And I think the, the Darwinists have felt the heat on that, but typically they will still just say there has to be some sort of indirect Darwinian pathway through some sort of process of co-option, repurposing, structures and functions co-evolve. We don't know exactly how, but it had to have happened because we know that design didn't happen. And that's really the only, right. only possibility. So it, it's a lot of hand-waving. I think we've got the better argument, but they have the, the money and the spots in the academy. And, uh, you know, well, you, you can see what's, what's happened. They're still often in the driver's seat when it comes to education, which is also one of the reasons, by the way, that I got into these educational websites and everything, because I thought, mm -hmm. I think it's, we, we missed it on the academic freedom side of things. You know, it's uh, I was removed at, from my position heading a uh, center on intelligent design at Baylor University over 20 years right. ago, precisely because Darwinists there put up a stink and, you know, 
I had no defenders, you know, and the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the freedom of thought and expression was not respected. Yeah. Uh, so it's a long drawn out conflict and, uh, you know, we, we just have to persist. So, but anyway, why don't we circle back to chess or yeah, whatever well, you're, you you're, you've, you've raised a couple of things. You reminded me when you're talking about uh, contact, I went to a, a seminar presentation actually a few years ago just up the road here a couple of miles with the SETI folks it was kind of interesting to hear their their discussion about their efforts to find extraterrestrial intelligence I did not raise my hand and say well why don't you apply this to biology but (laughs) but (laughs) the thought certainly crossed my mind and and yeah I mean I think you're you're actually being very kind and very modest in your critique there I think that there are probably some folks that fall in that category that you're that, that have sincere a misunderstanding that there's some kind of mechanism, whether it's mutation selection or something else that could do this. But I think a lot of folks just have a knee jerk, you know, it's fine in archeology span and uh, forensic science and patent litigation and plagiarism and all these areas. But boy, as soon as it comes to biology, uh, all heck breaks loose and, and we just can't consider yeah. it as a matter of principle. Um, so there's definitely that battle yep. that's, that I've, exists there. I've but, wit- witnessed it firsthand. Yeah. I think you have as oh, well. yeah. You've, you've been sort of the tip of the spear in many ways. <laughs> we, we thank you for taking the heat for so many years. Yeah. So, yeah, hey. Um, still, go ahead. No, I was just going to say on, on this uh, new book that's coming out also on the uh, conservation of information, I know you and, and several other people have been working on that. So that's exciting to hear that that'll be included. Yeah, actually, that material will be folded into uh, the design inference, the second edition, at least some of it. And I think it, depending on the reception and how far we get, I mean, that, it may be that it merits a second book of its own. I mean, we've, we've already done, there's a book on what we uh, titled Introduction to Evolutionary Informatics that mm-hmm. deals with yep with this uh, that Bob Marks and I and Winston Ewart did. And I should say, Winston Ewart uh, is my collaborator on the second edition. Are you guys looking at some of the evolutionary algorithms of Eda, that kind of thing as well? And Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's that's where we cut our teeth, you know, analyzing these, these algorithms back over a decade ago with the Evolutionary Informatics Lab. And it was that work which uh, really... I think finally got conservation of information in a theoretical form off the ground because basically, you know, we keep working on these, you know, show, looking at these algorithms and showing where they slipped in this information that mm-hmm. they claim to have created, you know, and so basically the, the information is always getting smuggled in, you know, it's, it's just, it's like a shell game, you know, and you just have to follow the shell and shells and then see, okay, where, where was the P all that time? So that's right. that's the sort of analysis, and we did it with Avita. I mean, that was you know that was the big one, right? Because that's that got published in Nature, and that was supposed to put an end to intelligent design. But uh, you know, there was uh, Thomas Ray's Tierra, there's uh, Tom Schneider's EV, uh, there's Richard Dawkins mm-hmm. thinks it is like a weasel, which has gone through all sorts of incarnations. Oh, that came up. My my son's at the uh, local community college here. The yeah. the weasel thing came up in his biology yeah. class just last year. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we we did. If you go to the evolutionary informatics lab, so that's evoinfo.org, evoinfo.org. Uh, there's a publications page and there's a, a software page. You know, so we have weaselware. There's the evware. There's mini veda. You know, so basically we do simulations of the simulations, as it were, and then show where they slip in uh, the information that they claim to get from scratch, you know, but it was that work that really helped nail it for us. Because when you keep trying to do something and you keep seeing, oh, it fails, it fails, it fails, 
then there can be reason to think, okay, there's this systemic reason why it fails. And these, mm-hmm. these conservation of information theorems, that's, that's what's, uh, why it fails. I mean, basically what it's saying is when you, if you've got a search, a baseline search that's highly improbable, because that, that's what you need to explain, right? I mean, the, the baseline search right. is a needle in the haystack. If it's not a needle in the haystack, chance can do it. So you need a needle in the haystack. And then if there, if you can raise the probability sufficiently so it's not a needle in the haystack anymore. So you go from needle in the haystack, call that probability P, to uh, no longer needle in the haystack, call that probability Q. Well, then, you know, what what is, is there's an information cost in going from P to Q. And that information cost is at least P divided by Q, which means that to get to a Q level search means you have to do, you have to overcome a P over Q probabilistic obstacle, and then you still have to do the Q level search. So when you put those together, you haven't improved beyond the original P level search. So Mm-hmm. Putting it all together, you you don't get around the uh, needle in the haystack problem. What you do is you you defer it. You you know it's you you know you you fill one hole by digging another. I mean that's that's what what's going right. on. And the mathematics is very precise. Uh, there are a number of theorems that we've proven. Uh, but whenever you try to represent how do you get a search that does so much better than a level P needle in the haystack search, there's a probabilistic cost. And at the end of the day, that probabilistic cost means you're not getting something for free. You're paying at least as much as what you're trying to get out. And that's the great promise of evolutionary theory, that you can get something for nothing. That's a mm-hmm, lunch. Mm-hmm. As Richard Dawkins says, what makes evolution such a neat theory is that you can get complexity from simplicity. And what this is saying is, no, you don't. You get complexity yeah. from the same complexity or even more complexity. That's why we call it conservation of information because conservation of information is the best you can do and most likely you're gonna do worse. In fact, these problems tend to get exponentially worse as you backtrack. And so it's uh, it's a very powerful result. I think unappreciated, if you look at Wikipedia, they'll say, you know, this is, I mean, they'll, they'll be sure always to get the, the word pseudoscience in there. And I think the, when I look, last looked at it, the most recent reference was to work in 2002 before we even proved any of these theorems. And we, we proved these theorems around between 2009 and 2011. So, you know, the, the editors at Wikipedia, you know, they, they keep a tight loop. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a separate topic. Yeah, that's, that's a big topic of its own. But, you know, I mentioned it because, sure. you know, it's it would be good to get people of the highest caliber who who could appreciate the math, understand what's really at mm-hmm. stake to consider it dispassionately. And uh, by and large, I think it just gets ignored because, you know, people think, well, of course, you know, these intelligent design people, they're just crazies and they've got nothing to offer, you know? So that's, that's mm-hmm. how, how it, it tends, tends to go. So it's, it's too bad, but uh, you know, we keep pressing ahead. And I think we do, we do make converts, and I think there are you know other nations where there's just a greater reception right. to the receptivity to these ideas than here, you know. And so uh, I think it's there's there's a lot of good movement forward, you know. It's just it would be nice to see more of it in our backyard. Yeah, no, it sounds fantastic. So evoinfo.org, maybe yeah. we can put a link to that at the podcast when we put that out. 
That was part one of my conversation with William Dembski about his recent work in education and the critical principle of the conservation of information that disproves the Darwinist hope that evolution can provide something for nothing, a free lunch. In the next part of our conversation, we'll consider the recent allegations of cheating rocking the highest levels of professional chess and how the design inference relates to this current hot topic. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.